I've entitled the study Profiles in Faith. We will be looking at the topic of faith today. In Hebrews 11 will be our primary text. As a preface, I need to let you know that I am not here to bring you great insights of faith from my own life. I would not consider myself an example of enormous or great faith by any means. I am not an apostle. I am not even a great evangelist. I'm just a student of Scripture. And as a student of Scripture, what we're going to be doing this morning is really learning, doing what we can by learning from those who we understand from Scripture really were great men and ladies of faith. And so the experts in faith we're going to find in the Bible, certainly not from my own insight or experience. I would like you to open up, though, to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, the, this is the text that we're going to spend most of our time in. There are 40 verses. It is a, a bit lengthy, but I feel compelled that we have to read the entire chapter before we can really have a good understanding of what's going on. So I'm going to ask the entire congregation to open your Bibles be standing, please. Please be standing. We're going to read responsibly all of Hebrews chapter number 11. I'm aware it's just a bit long, but it does flow well. It's very interesting. It's not hard to read and hard to understand necessarily. So I do pray that you'll follow along. So I'd really encourage everybody who can, has the ability to read and the ability to stand to stand and read with me in a responsive manner. Hebrews chapter 11. And then you can sit and relax and rest, and I'll not ask much more of you in that respect. Here we go, Hebrews 11. I'll begin and you follow. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. By faith Noah, being warned of God things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into the place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, and as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is the heavenly, wherewith God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith, Isaac was Jacob, and By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw that he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was twenty years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, as he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians essayed to do were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and of Samuel, and of the prophets. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the age. <laughs> Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you. I know that was a lengthy reading, but now we have a real sense of where the author is trying to take us. 
as we consider this list. Now this list has many nicknames, some called heroes of the faith, there are a variety of things, but the writer who most folks believe was probably St. Paul, offered all of these ladies and gentlemen, mostly gentlemen, but there is a couple of ladies on the list. God offered each of them as an example to us that we might learn from them. Now, as we think about faith and we think about the examples that have been set before us, it'd probably be good to begin with a couple of preliminaries. First of all, we have to have some sense of what is faith. Now, the classic definition of faith, of course, is given in the first verse when it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? If you want to have that put into a more conventional, plain speech, really faith boils down to something like this. Faith is confidence that God will do what he said, even though you don't see the proof that your skeptical mind wants to see. In our thoughts, in our thinking, in the, what we observe, what the information that comes in through the eye gate and the ear gate, typically we want to see proof before we move forward. Now that might work out very well in many practical elements of life. The banker wants to see proof that you can pay back the loan. You shouldn't fault the banker for that. If that were not the case, we would have a banking calamity every year instead of just every couple of decades. There are many things in life where we really do need to see the proof. As a teacher, I need to see the proof that the student knows the material. I can't take it at face value and he says, yes, I, 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 know, how, I know what the quadratic equation is. Sure, I know. I don't need to show you. But with God, it's different. God demands something different. What we expect of one another is not what we should expect of God. He is not like you and I. So the same skepticism that you and I might find useful and perhaps even healthy, one with another, is not how we interact with our Father in heaven. Faith is when we have confidence that God will do what he said, even though you don't see the proof that maybe your skeptical mind would like to see. Now, the premier example of faith is Abraham. And Abraham is profiled in this chapter very highly, as I'm sure you noticed. Now, there's a couple of interesting passages about this. Really, the, the, the primary element of Abraham's faith really begins in the book of Genesis. We could spend a lot of time on Abraham and his journey of faith. But in Genesis 15, let me just read these two verses. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but someone from thine own bowels shall be thine heir. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look toward the heaven, tell the stars, if thou be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. God counted it to Abraham as righteousness that he believed that miraculously a child would be born to Abraham. This is spoken of repeatedly throughout Scripture. 
And Abraham is such a towering example of faith. Probably the single best example, if we had to pick, would be Abraham. And Paul speaks of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. I'd like to read for you a couple of verses out of Romans 4 respecting Abraham's faith and the faith that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, that there would be children, there would be multitudinous that would come forth, his offspring would be as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, and yet Abraham had to believe all that when he had no child at all. If we break into Romans 4, verse 18, Paul writes about Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness." Now, there's a, a, a multitude, a plethora, a myriad of sermons you can find about faith, and probably many of them have much to offer. There's many articles that have been written about faith. There's just so much that has been written and said about faith. One of the things, though, you and I have to understand, I believe, is how are we going to obtain faith? How do, how do I obtain faith? Well, there's two elements to it. First of all, we have to understand that, that faith really is a gift. True faith is a gift. The greater reality, that when I say the greater reality, I mean God's perspective. And God's perspective is the true and full perspective, the broad perspective, the big picture. And this greater reality is that faith is a gift from God. Now, there are a couple of important passages in Scripture that teach this. We could start in Romans chapter 12, verse number 3, when Paul writes, Through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. God grants it, God gives it, He deals it out. In Ephesians, Paul wrote these famous passages, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, verses that many of you probably have memorized, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48 when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those that were ordained to eternal life believed. The belief and the faith came after God's election. Now, of course, that's God's point of view. That's the greater reality. That's the big picture. You and I, of course, don't see the big picture at all. You and I walk in a rather clouded condition. We, we, we see through a glass darkly. We don't understand all that there is to know. And that's called the lesser reality. The lesser reality 
is this. We are called to develop our faith as we struggle against our own fallen nature. Our own fallen nature continually presses us with doubt and skepticism. And that skepticism when it comes to God and that doubt when it comes to God is our fallen nature telling us, don't believe what God says. Now we have to struggle against that. And there are many different ways we can look into this. Let me just give you one famous story. It's sort of an apocryphal story. I'm not even sure if it's completely true, but it, it probably has some root in truth. It's called the wheelbarrow story. And it goes like this. There is a man who made his living impressing crowds by being a tightrope walker. And he stretched a stout tightrope across a large gorge that had a raging river with rocks at the bottom. And what he did is he first walked across the tightrope by himself over and back again. And then he got a wheelbarrow and he took the wheelbarrow empty on the rope over and then back again. And then we, the third time, he put some feed sacks, heaped the wheelbarrow full of many pounds of feed sacks, maybe 150 pounds. Took the 150 pounds of feed sacks across the gorge on the tightrope, turned around and came back again. Then he said to the crowd, I'll give $1,000 to anyone who will climb in the wheelbarrow and let me push them over and back again. Typically, no one would go for it. Well, did they have faith? Well, <laughs> that's the thing. That's the thing. Intellectually, of course, there is a lot of good reasons why you could say it's perfectly safe. He ought to be able to do it. But then there's all these what-ifs, <laughs> which naturally come rushing in. And this is, your, so when we say we're called to exercise our faith and develop our faith, we have to take action and steps, perhaps incremental steps, to build that faith. Real quick, let me give you another example from my own life. When I was young, I, was a, I had a job at a summer camp as a rappelling instructor. I liked, and I enjoyed that. I, I, we had a rappelling tower, and I'd take kids off to these cliffs, and I'd take these young people, these children, and youth, and, and I'd teach them how to rappel down uh, the mountain, down the face of the cliff, 60, 80, 100 feet perhaps. Teaching young people to, be, to, to rappel was, is always a little bit of a, a challenge, but it depends on the youngster. Naturally, when you're standing at the lip of the cliff, you say, I'd like to do that. That looks pretty interesting. That's, I'd, I'd like to give that a try. But then when you get to the lip of the cliff, and you look at the rope, and you say the rope is pretty slim, it's only about the size of your finger, and you begin to imagine, well, what if the rope breaks? And I would say something like, well, look, that rope is so strong, it could not only hold you, it could hold 20 of you. That's how strong the rope is. Trust the rope. Trust the rope. And then you get to look a little further and say, well, the rope is tied to this tree. What if the knot comes untied? I say, don't worry. It's a double knot, and it's double knotted beyond that. The rope will not come untied from the tree. Trust the knot. But what about the tree? What if the tree somehow becomes uprooted? It's a big tree. It's been here for 80 years, probably. 
trust that the tree is going to be okay. And so you go through a whole series of these things, and gradually, incrementally, you build your faith and trust in the tree and the rope and in the instructor and the knots and the ropes and the attachments, and you learn to repel. Now, that's what, we're, that's what we have to do in our faith in this world as well. We're called to develop our faith, and it means you've got to trust. You've got to learn to have faith and trust in God, and you've got to take positive steps in action. Now, those are just illustrations. They're not perfect illustrations, but they give us some sense of what has to be done. And as we read through Acts chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, we saw that each of those people that we looked at and read about were people that actually did things. Now, that's what James talks about. In James chapter 2, he talks about this. He says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You can look that up. James tells us that. It's well known. A, a familiar passage. We are called to act. We are called to action. Now, we could talk about saving faith. The most important faith and the, time, most, the greatest faith, of course, the most important faith for us is always saving faith. The saving faith that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, saving faith is relying completely on who Jesus is as the Son of God and accepting His sacrifice for sin to make you right with God. As Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I'm not a Baptist. Pastor Gaiman's not a Baptist. I was once a Southern Baptist, or that is, I used to attend regularly a Southern Baptist church for about two years. Every single sermon ended with a call of salvation. They have a heart to reach out to people, and that's good. I don't know if they still do that. This would be a good time, though, to think about that for a moment. However many of us are here this morning, I do not know if you are walking in a state of salvation. There might be people here today who are not walking in a state of salvation because they have not asked Jesus Christ to be their only sacrifice and solution for sin. That saving faith is the most important decision of your life. If you have never, if you have never made that commitment, if you have never reached out in humility, in confession of sin, to confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. If that has never become a reality in your life, please don't let this day pass without making it a reality. Don't let this service pass without making that a reality. Making that confession and calling unto God for salvation. In a larger picture, though, there are a number of elements of our lives that require faith. And there, in fact, there's a number of elements of our Christian life that require faith. And each of these have to be exercised. Now, if someone were to say, what's the first step on the pathway to faith? I would probably take you to Romans 10, where we were, the verses I just read, and point you to verse number 17. 
It says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There's no substitute for the Bible. And there's no substitute for meditating on the words of the Bible. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is, when when we say things like, oh, the Word of God is your daily bread, that's not just a euphemism, that's not just a phraseology. The Word of God is your daily life. It is your source of faith. If you do not feed upon the Word of God daily, if you do not think about the Word of God, it doesn't do, it's not enough just to read it. And it may not be quite enough really to just to, to study it and dissect it. You have to meditate on it. You have to think upon it deeply. That is what we're called to do. That is what builds your faith. That is the source. That is the energy that you're going to derive from which you're going to derive strength for the daily battles of life. So the Word of God is the first step. There's another important element of this. Many of you are probably familiar with different aspects of the Christian world, congregations and evangelists, who speak of faith in, 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 I think, sort of a self-serving and casual manner in which they, they say, look, listen, <clears throat> you can really be blessed financially. God can really make you wealthy and prosperous and just make your life wonderful in every way if you're a person of faith. Now, there, there sometimes are, I, I don't know if it's fair to them, but this is the crowd that has sometimes been labeled name it and claim it, or blab it and grab it, and so forth and so on. <laughs> I need to get this thought out there. Faith is never self-serving. Faith is never self-serving. It is God-glorifying. That's what real, genuine faith is all about. It's not about obtaining a better home, or that RV that you've always wanted, or the status that you hope for, or even the financial security that you crave after you build up enough financial assets. It's not self-serving. It's God-glorifying. And if it's not God-glorifying, it's not faith. It's not genuine biblical faith. Now, turning back to Hebrews 11, I'd like to profile a few of the people that we read about. So what can the heroes of the faith teach us? Well, let's start with Noah. Now, there are, if I counted correctly, there are 16 names listed, plus others that are not listed, the prophets. So, Paul is giving us this this long list. I've got five I'd like to call your attention to at the time that we have. The first one is Noah. Now, it tells us that Noah, being warned of God of things not seen, that is, not seen yet, that is the flood... (laughs) he moved with fear and he prepared an ark. Now, what can we learn from that? Well, what I see about that is this. Noah moved with fear. He moved with fear. Now, when you read the account of Genesis chapter 6, we don't see, and we don't see a description of Noah being fearful. But this passage tells us that Noah did move with fear. What does that mean? What was he afraid of? Well, I'd say there may be several things he might have been afraid of. 
He might have been afraid of the flood itself. He might have been afraid, I've got to build this ark for me and my children. He might have been afraid of God. He might have been afraid of disappointing God or, or angering God. He might have been so moved by God's instructions that he, he said, I've got to do what God says. We don't really know what Paul meant when he said, Noah moved with fear. We're left to speculate a little bit. It may be that Noah had a little bit of fear of those that were around about him. Bear this in mind. Noah was doing that which was ridiculous. That, that's kind of an important thought when it comes to faith. Noah believed in God more than, and he was able to overcome it by his, with his faith in God because he leaned upon that faith and that confidence in God more than the ridicule that he received from those who mocked him. He did that which was ridiculous. It seemed ridiculous. Noah was an alarmist. For those of you that are alarmists, hey, God bless you. There's a seat at the table for alarmists. I don't know that everyone needs to be an alarmist. But Noah was. And in that case, he was right. Now, Abraham has a powerful testimony in all of this. You'll notice when we shift on to Abraham, it says, Abraham, in verse 8, was called to go out into a place which he should receive for an inheritance. It says he knew, went out not knowing whither he went. Did you notice that? Abraham started moving to the new location, but he didn't know where he was going. He began his journey not knowing where the end was. He didn't know where he was going. In time, Abraham was supposed to create a nation. But you see, much of Abraham's life, Abraham was really acting blindly. This is one of the reasons why Abraham is so high profiled, is because God said, this is what I'm going to do with you, and this is how it's going to happen, and this is what I want you to do. But Abraham was acting totally blind. He was supposed to create a nation. But first of all, he did not know what land he was going to be going to. He did not know how he was going to take possession of it. And he didn't know how he was going to fill it up with people. Imagine that if it was one of you. Imagine if I say to Chad over here, Chad... We're going to make a mighty nation of you. You're going to have millions of descendants. Now I want you to go out and start that nation. And Chad says, well, where's it going to be? Well, I'll let you know later. How am I going to conquer and take possession of the land? We'll let you know later, Chad. How am I going to fill it up? I don't even have a single son yet. Well, we'll take care of that later, Chad. Just get busy building a nation. That's essentially what God was telling Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation of you. He didn't know where he was going, how he was going to take possession of the land, or how he was going to fill it up. Yet he acted, and he continued to act consistently throughout his life based on the premise that God would do what God had told him he would do. God would fulfill his promise. This is what makes Noah such a great man of faith. Excuse me, Abraham such a great man of faith. 
and we consider Sarah. And we all know the story of Sarah pretty well, how Sarah was very old and was past the age of childbearing. But you might notice something. It wasn't problems just with Sarah. In Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 11, let's, let's read a little bit there about the faith of Sarah. It says, Through faith also Sarah received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Or keep reading. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude. Do you perceive that? The pro- it wasn't just a problem with Sarah. It turns out that Sarah was supposed to have a baby when she was old, and her husband, as we've just read, was as good as dead. Now that's repeated back in Romans 4.19. There was a problem with Abraham as well. Not only was Sarah past the age of childbearing, Abraham apparently was past the age in which he would normally father a child. Yet ultimately, Sarah did. And while Sarah had her moments of doubts and skepticism, God continued with her, and she became a great lady of faith. Now Moses, if we continue on to Moses, beginning in 24, we see that there's a description of all the things that Moses was supposed to do, and how Moses acted, in the end, acted very wisely and acted very well. It tells us that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses chose to suffer the affliction with the people of God. And it says, he forsook Egypt. By faith, he forsook Egypt. And through faith, he kept Passover. Through faith, they passed through the Red Sea. So all of these things associated with the life of Moses demonstrate great faith. But Moses had a lesson to learn as well. You might recall that early in Moses' life, he tried to take things into his own hand when he saw an injustice. He murdered an Egyptian, and he had to flee the land of Egypt. And 40 years later, 40 years later, Moses came back after God captured his attention with several miracles. The burning bush, the rod that turned into a serpent. Then Moses was ready. You see, Moses was called to lead a nation. And I think Moses knew when he was young that he was called and prepared to lead a nation. I think Moses perceived when he was young that he was brought up in Pharaoh's court for that purpose so that Moses would receive the training about how to organize an army, how to give a good speech, how to speak, how to, how to be a statesman, how to make decisions, how to be a diplomat, all of the things that kings and princes had to learn. Moses had learned all of that in the house of Pharaoh. And I think Moses knew that he had been called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses eventually had to also learn that it was going to have to be done God's way, not Moses' way. 
It wasn't going to be done through the talent and the skill of Moses as a diplomat or as a statesman or as a commander of armies. It had to be done in God's miraculous way. So essentially, he had to learn that God was going to get all of the credit. Moses had to learn that God was going to get the glory in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it wasn't going to be done by the skill and the insight and the wisdom and the talents that Moses possessed because of his upbringing. I'd like to look at Rahab. Now, of all the people on this list, Rahab is only mentioned in one verse. But I have a particular reason I'd like to look at Rahab. So we're going to take a side trip now. I'd like to talk about Rahab because she plays a significant role in the children of Israel coming into the land of Canaan. And it's a particular and unique challenge uh, that each of us as believers in Israel need to consider. Now Rahab was, if you'll remember the story, Rahab was an obscure prostitute. We better read the verse in Hebrews 11. Verse 31. This is all that the Hebrews tells us about Rahab. Verse 31. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, if you haven't looked at the story of Rahab lately, I would like you to do so right now. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Joshua and let's spend just a couple of minutes looking at the story of Rahab. Joshua chapter 2. Now, of course, the first several chapters of Joshua are filled with a lot of remarkable and exciting things. We have Joshua leading the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, conquering various and sundry peoples, slaying the wicked, and so forth and so on. It's a rather exciting book. One of the most memorable parts of the book, though, of course, is the capture of the city and the destruction of the city of Jericho. And that involves Rahab. Let me read for you a few verses out of Joshua chapter 2 as we consider the story of Rahab. All right? Now, I'm going to read from uh, beginning in Joshua 2 verse 1. It says, Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came to a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight to the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they shall be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came two men to me, but I, I wist not where they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house, hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. Well, we could keep reading to get the sense of this story. But let's just look at this, a couple of things here. First of all, there are those who look at the story of Rahab and 
It tells us in several places in Scripture that she was a harlot, a prostitute. There are those who say, well, really she was probably more of an innkeeper or a, a hotel manager or something of that nature. Well, that probably isn't a fair assessment if you look at the words in both the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament account in terms of the Greek and Hebrew. It probably really was a prostitute. She probably really was. So she was given a second chance in life here. Now, she didn't miss this opportunity. Now, one of the things she needed was courage. And she needed a lot of courage, a tremendous amount of courage to take the steps that she took. So let's kind of recap the story, all right? In case you are not fresh with all the story, we don't have time to read all of the story. But let's just hit the highlights. All right, you understand, Joshua and the children of Israel are getting ready to enter the land of Canaan. And the first great city, in fact, perhaps the greatest of the cities in the land of Canaan was Jericho. It was on the border of the land of Canaan. Two spies come into the city. They look around. They check things out. The spies that Joshua sent to look around the city and look around the landscape <clears throat> come into Rahab's house. They need to be hidden. Rahab says, oh, okay, I'll hide you. So she takes him and hides him among some stalks of flax. The king of Jericho comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, Rahab, hey, we, think, we think there's some spies somewhere in your house. She says, well, they were here, but they're gone already. In fact, I think they went over there. If you hurry, you guys can catch them. So the men who are looking for the spies, the men of Jericho looking for the spies, the king's agents, they charge across the river looking for the two spies. Of course, they weren't there. Rahab had hid them. If you keep reading the story, we'll discover that Rahab says before she uh, releases them and lets them go on their way, she says, hey, look, <laughs> I know, I know what's going to happen here. God in heaven has given this land to the people of Israel. And if you don't mind, <laughs> since I've done you this favor, maybe you could do me a favor. Maybe you could spare my life and the life of my family. So she lets them down a rope, and they scurry off. But before they do, they say, sure, we'll give you this promise. We will spare you. All you've got to do is you've got to keep a, a red cord hanging out your window. Because it tells us, we understand from the context of the story, that, that her home was literally on part of the city wall, which is another story in architecture. So they make this agreement. So they go their way, and Rahab has now helped the spies. One of the things that is of interest to me is answering this question. Was Rahab a Canaanite? Was she a Canaanite? This might be an important question for a couple of reasons. I'd like to give you a little evidence because I think she was not. Now, all the Bible commentators that I've read and asking this question, was Rahab a Canaanite, will say, yes, she was a Canaanite. But I've read the accounts of Scripture pretty thoroughly, and I'm pretty certain that nowhere in the Bible does it say Rahab was a Canaanite. I've read Josephus. He does not say that Rahab was a Canaanite. I don't find any biblical evidence that really says, yes, she was a Canaanite. I'd like to throw out the idea that Rahab was not a Canaanite. 
You say, well, why would it be important whether she's a Canaanite or not? Well, here's the reason why it could be important for us to answer this question. It's because a little later on, when we go to Joshua chapter 6 and you read the story, we discover that the Israelites march around the city seven times. The walls of Jericho fall down, except for Rahab's section of the wall. She and her family are saved, and they are taken in to the bosom of the children of Israel. They come before Joshua, and they are given an inheritance with the children of Israel. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 6. There are those who argue, if you read in Matthew chapter 1, there are those who argue that Rahab married a man named Salmon, who was a direct ancestor of King David, thus making Rahab, if this is the right Rahab, that would make Rahab an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Now, other scholars disagree and say there's a chronological problem. They probably have a really pretty good case for that, and that's a different Rahab. But that's not the, we don't need to go down that road and argue those details. But this particular Rahab was given quite a great reward and became really a part of the commonwealth of Israel. So it's an interesting question, was Rahab a Canaanite? Now, I'd like to tell you why I think she was not. All right, are you ready? I've got five reasons. I'll run through them pretty quickly. Number one, the context of the city of Jericho, if you think about the historic context, what this city was, Jericho was the largest city-state in the region. Jericho was on the border of the land of Canaan, and Jericho was, if you read about it, I believe what you might call an international city. Now, what do you mean by an international city? An international city is one that might be in one country, but it has people from all over the place. Today, in the United States of America, Los Angeles is an international city. There are people from every place on the planet that live in Los Angeles. New York is an international city. London is an international city. There are people from all over the planet living in London. It's not true if you drive 50 miles away from London, but it is in the city of London, believe me. Jericho, in like manner, I believe, was an international city. We would expect other people besides Canaanites to live in this great city of Jericho, other people of other races and ethnicities. And I think it's plausible that Rahab was not a native to the region, especially considering the fact of her profession, which meant that she really lived on the edge of society. She was living on the edge of this social structure. Second, Rahab plainly wanted the city of Jericho to fall. Rahab had no loyalty to the city of Jericho. Rahab wanted to see the city destroyed, wanted to see the city fall. She could have easily given the spies over to the king of Jericho, and he said, where'd those spies go? She could have said, they're right around the corner. Thanks for showing up. I'm glad you're here. But she didn't. So this also suggests that she and her family were not native to the city of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, we see that she also gave a remarkable testimony, her own personal testimony. If you go to Joshua chapter 2, verse 11... This is what Rahab says to the two spies. She says, As soon as we had heard these things, our heart did melt. Neither did there remain any courage in any man because of you. Now pay attention. For the Lord your God 
He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. I believe Rahab already had a sense of who God was. I think the idea of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, was not brand new to her. You'll notice she uses the tetragrammaton in that verse. Jehovah, Yahweh, however you choose. He is the God of heaven above and the earth beneath. Next, the fact, if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, well, I tell you what, let me just do it this way since we're kind of, time is moving along. If we read in Joshua chapter 6, you can read about how, as her reward, she was taken in to the commonwealth of Israel. Now, she was brought into the commonwealth of Israel at a particular moment in time. It's interesting that she was brought into the commonwealth of Israel literally, probably a matter of weeks after a very important statute and law and statement had been laid down. A very important commandment had been laid down. Literally just a matter of weeks before, I believe, in Josh, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we have very clear language that tells the children of Israel not to allow any Canaanites into their midst. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, it says, Do not let any of your daughters marry their sons. Do not let your sons marry their daughters, but stay away from them. In fact, destroy them, all of them. Get rid of all of them. Do not let them into your midst. Now, Rahab was let into their midst, literally, I believe a matter of weeks after that important command had been given. Now, since Rahab was received in the commonwealth of Israel, immediately after the order not to admit any Canaanites, that's a real problem. If she were a Canaanite, this would completely undermine this fresh command. Joshua, in rewarding her with this, would have immediately undermined the command that had just been given not long before Joshua took command of the, the children of Israel, in which Moses said, don't do this. So I think that suggests she was not a Canaanite. Finally, if we think about the list she appears on in Hebrews chapter 11, she is on a list of people from God's elect family tree. Every single person mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is out of the same family tree, beginning with Enoch and Abel and Noah and then Abraham, and then it goes on and on with with. with with Jacob and Isaac and Sarah and, and so forth and so on, all the way down through Samson and Jephthah, every one of them was an Israelite or was of that family tree, the family tree coming from Adam. Why would a non-Israelite be on that list? Particularly, why would Paul add her to a list in a letter that's written to the Hebrews? The letter was written to the Hebrews to persuade Hebrew people they ought to believe in Jesus Christ. Why would he include her on a list to the Hebrews when everyone else in that list is a Hebrew, is of that family tree? So if she was of another race, I don't believe she'd be on that list. So I want to lay all those items out because as a little bit of a side trip on our discussion of, of faith, 
and a discussion of Hebrews chapter 11, I'd like you to just take away the thought that I believe God knew what he was doing when he spared Rahab. And in God's providence, all of this is, is, is not a problem. It's not a problem. I believe Rahab was not a Canaanite for the reasons I've described. Now, <clears throat> returning to faith and how we can exercise our faith in a practical way. I've got three thoughts for you that are, I hope will be of value. If you want to exercise your faith in a practical way, you've got to do some discovery. You need to find what you think is God's direction for your life. You've got to find that. Now, you're probably not going to find that easily. That is not an easy task. I can tell you from my own personal perspective, as a person who now spends time in the pulpit and as a minister, it's interesting that when I was a boy, my mother said to me several times, she said, you know, Reed, when you grow up, I sure hope you pick a profession to my liking. Well, what do you want me to be? She said, well, I think being a, maybe a farmer or rancher would be a good choice. Or a minister, that'd be, that'd be great too. I'd like to be minister. Well, you know what? I didn't want either one of those. I didn't want either one. I didn't want anything to do with the land or cows. And I didn't want to be a preacher or a minister. Well, lo and behold, my old mother appeared to be right. Because my, the direction of my life has put me smack dab in the middle of both of those things. And you know what? My desires changed. Now, I don't know if it's going to work out that way in your life. But I believe that if you find God's direction for your life, and it won't be quick and it won't be easy, it may not be the future that you want, but you will come to want it. You will come to want it. Second, you've got to determine what behaviors on your part are consistent with that future. You've got to figure out how I should act, what I should do, and how I should make my way through this world. If I believe I know what God wants me to do, I've got to act and make choices that are consistent with that future. And these choices, finally, you have to make choices that presume that that future will someday be realized. That's what we can see out of the great people of faith in Scripture. Abraham made choices that proved and demonstrated that he believed that God's promises would indeed one day be realized. Now, as we close, we need to look at the latter verses of Hebrews chapter 11, because they present quite a challenge. I'd like to call your attention to the last five verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the last five verses. Question, am I guaranteed to receive the promise that I believe God is pointing me towards? I say, I think that God is pointing me in this direction. I have great confidence this is where he wants me to go. I have great confidence this is what he wants me to do. Am I guaranteed that that's all going to unfold for me? Well, you are not guaranteed that, ladies and gentlemen. At least not in this world or in this lifetime. You are not. And that's a, kind of a strange and a difficult thing to understand. But we can in, indeed return to Abraham for an example. We could look at his life. Of the things that Abraham was promised, what was fulfilled before he closed his eyes in death? Well, he got a son. 
Did he take possession of the land? No. no. Did, he, did he have thousands or millions of descendants? No. no. When he closed his eyes in death, as far as I know, he had one child of promise. He did not leave behind him anything that looked like it was about to explode into a great nation. He did not have control of the land. Abraham had to buy his everything in the land. Well, I don't want to get bogged down there. We're just about out of time. But the thing you have to understand, God's called to us, called us to be faithful. But we may not get the reward that we are longing for and expect in this lifetime. So that takes us, now we better stop and read those last verses of Hebrews before we uh, get any further. Let me call your attention now to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning of verse 35. I'm going to read these verses. Let your eyes roll upon them as we, roll, as we, as we close our Bible study now. I know everybody would like to move on with lunch, but before we do, let's just look at this, these last few points closely. It says in verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. That sounds great, but keep reading. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. How many want to volunteer for that? Would you like to be mocked and scourged? Have bonds of imprisonment? Is that your, is that your idea of the way you'd like things to work out? You want to spend your, the rest of your life in a federal penitentiary? I don't. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Ooh, that sounds like fun. They were tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about, etc., etc. And then it goes on to say, in 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They didn't get the promise. You say, well, how can I be a person of faith? I, got, I thought God, I thought the definition of faith is that God's going to do what He says He's going to do. And I'm supposed to believe it without proof. And now you're telling me that I might not get it after all. Oh, you'll get something. You'll get it after all, just not in this life. So let's go to the, the next point there. So the question really is begged, why then should I bother being faithful? There are two excellent reasons, two outstanding reasons. Are you ready? Verse 39 tells us, gives us one of them. It says... These all, even though they didn't receive the promise, they obtained a good report. What does that mean? It means they gained an excellent reputation. Their memory and their reputation is exalted. Now, all of us are going to pass through this earth and pass away and end our days. Everyone is, every one of us is going to have a reputation of one sort or another that we leave behind. And you can think of your grandparents or your great-grandparents or those who've gone before. What's the reputation that you carry right now? Well, that reputation lasts forever. After you die, your reputation lasts forever in all of the people that follow you. You can't change it then. 
Being faithful to the end gives you that good report, that good reputation. That is a mighty reward. But number two, verse 35 tells us also that those that did not accept deliverance obtain a better resurrection. Paul teaches us about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Some have the glory of the sun, some is the moon, some is the stars. There are different glories of resurrection. You want a better resurrection? Be faithful to the end. Whether or not God gives you the promise that you are hoping for in this lifetime or not, you will get your reward, be assured. Your reward will be with a better resurrection. Let me close with this regarding faith. Since we live in a time, we live in a time when persecution is an ever-present concern. And it, we're, all of us have concerns that trouble might be ahead for the remnant. But that's not really completely new. Let me read a statement from John Wycliffe. Now, John Wycliffe, you don't remember, was the man who first translated the Bible into the English language. It was a bit of a medieval translation, a late medieval translation, into what we now call Middle English, so we don't use it much. But he had this to say. He says, a man who is firmly grounded in the faith, the more he is pounded by persecution, the greater and more fervent is his belief. I hope and trust that all of us can live up to that high calling. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and may God bless you.